are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. I was recently made aware of the fact that 10 wealthy countries have monopolized 75% of all vaccinations delivered worldwide. This has led the United Nations to sharply criticize the world's wealthy countries for hogging COVID vaccines. In light of growing vaccine nationalism, many voices have been calling for global sharing of vaccines. But it turns out 130 countries have not received a single dose of a COVID vaccine. Thus, we are at a critical moment when vaccine equity appears to be one of the biggest moral tests before the global community. Indeed, numerous recent opinion pieces in the media have highlighted how vaccine nationalism, driven by power and competition between states aimed at protecting their national interests, has several negative consequences, especially for low-income countries. A few days ago, Kenya petitioned the UN Security Council to urge wealthy countries not to hoard surplus COVID-19 vaccine supplies, adding its voice to calls for global production to be shared more equally. Without equal access to vaccines, public health experts have warned that the pandemic could continue to live on residually for years on end, resulting in more deaths and further economic collapse. When the virus remains endemic somewhere in the world, it'll continue to pose a threat everywhere. But there are also some promising initiatives currently underway. One of these is the COVAX initiative, the drive to ensure that vaccines reach low-income countries, which the World Health Organization and countries like Norway have been promoting as the fastest way to end the pandemic. But how effective has COVAX been thus far? And are countries being generous in allocating resources to this initiative? To discuss vaccine nationalism, the merits of the COVAX initiative, and vaccine diplomacy being carried out by countries like India and China, I'm joined by Antoine Rebanji Pouvaye, who is working on a PhD in political science and is based at the Center for Development and the Environment at the University of Oslo. Over the years, Antoine has worked extensively on global health governance and global cooperation to manage disease outbreaks such as Ebola. He's also been particularly active of late in pointing out the dangers of vaccine nationalism. It is such a blessing when every now and then we're able to recruit brilliant PhD students. Antoine is one such student, who in addition to writing excellent academic pieces, also frequently engages in the public debate on matters related to global health governance. I hope you enjoy our brief conversation in this bonus episode of In Pursuit of Development. Welcome to the show, Antoine. It's so good to see you here. Thanks, Dan. I know you've been working on 
on this concept of vaccine and nationalism. And as I understand it, it is about countries prioritizing their needs and not really thinking about you know, the global public good. And there's been considerable criticism of this concept, and I don't want to start there. I actually want to ask you whether you could see some positives with this kind of concept, this focus on taking care of our needs in the rich countries. And I'm asking you this because just a few hours ago, our prime minister here in Norway put forth three scenarios, optimistic, pessimistic scenarios. And in many ways, the discussion so far has been all about our summer holidays. You know, can we have a normal summer? And I was thinking that maybe one argument in support of vaccine nationalism is this idea in rich countries that we could have a normal life, that we could go and attend concerts and go to restaurants or attend sporting events as the Australians are doing as we speak at the Australian Open. So rather than beginning with all the negatives, can you see some positives with this idea of vaccine nationalism? I think what I can say is why do we accept vaccine nationalism and why is it there? And I think here it's very clear. It's the international system is based on this Westphalian uh, system of nation states where you have elected politicians who answer to their national constituency and they have a responsibility toward them. They're held accountable by vote for democracies or <laughs> any other ways for non-democracies. Um, to their citizens and they have a duty to provide for them uh, and in many ways it's kind of logical that they need to prioritize them so that's that's how we end up uh, thinking first my own national community uh, and then comes all the criticism for why this is a, a narrow-minded view uh, including for instance that the virus mutates and you can be protected and then lose your protection if you have a mutation coming back the, from, from somewhere else in the world afterwards. But do you think there are lots of countries who really explicitly promote the idea of vaccine nationalism? Because I'm thinking it's it's usually the United States that has somehow been put into that category. It appears to me all the other countries, the rich countries, many of them are perhaps interested in that kind of uh, an approach, but don't want to talk about it openly, you know? So it's like you want to perhaps uh, hide the fact that you are actually prioritizing your own population. Is that your take on the situation? Yeah, I fully agree. I think the US is kind of this extreme case under the Trump administration of America first. And they, you know, they bragged about it. They were so happy that uh, that they could get more vaccine than everyone else. And the reason for it is that it's not allowed to export vaccine that is produced in the US. So it's, it's only for US citizens. So this being said, I think every country or every regional group like the EU, I think it's one issue with vaccine nationalism is that we think of the nation, but the EU is not a nation. It's a group of countries getting together. Uh, what I prefer to talk about is protectionism, getting my country first and, and using you know, protective measures to implement it. Um, and yes, I think everyone does it. I mean, just three weeks ago, there was this massive talks about India who might consider banning experts of, of the vaccine. And that, that you, you know, created really a, 
uh, a lot of emotions uh, in the world because everyone counts on India to to get the vaccines to to the world. And so, but again, you know, it's uh, whether it's the UK, Israel, the EU, uh, India, or or any other countries. It's uh, of course you need you have a duty to. Um, vaccinate your own population and then you need to balance it and it's a dilemma and it's a difficult balance to strike with the obvious interest you have in solving the pandemic at the global stage and the global level. There are all of these initiatives like COVAX and the ACT Accelerator that is talking about getting into partnerships with both the vaccine producers and making sure that there's enough vaccines, or at least some vaccines that are accessible in in less developed countries, in in low-income country contexts. And I know that our country, Norway, has been one of those champions. So what, according to you, are the benefits of this initiative? Because it seems to be win-win at face value, but in reality, there are also many shortcomings. And I'm a little intrigued, you know, when I see the debates and I, and I read about it, at least those that are promoting it, including our development minister and our global health ambassador, there is this feeling that everything is working, whereas I also see lots of criticisms that perhaps it isn't always that clear. You were mentioning the EU case, you know, what are the contracts and under what conditions will these vaccines be produced? What are the exact terms and conditions for distribution and pricing? So is it all shrouded in secrecy? What are, what are the good things about COVAX and what are the shortcomings? Uh, wide question, Dan, but uh, I think to make it short, I would say that the world is an, an equal place. You have inequalities in the world, that's a reality. And how, uh, you know, vaccination will just reflect these inequalities. So uh, this is the world as it is. And then from there you work, you work with what you have. And COVAX had the ambition to kind of lower the, the playing field so that uh, you don't have this level of inequalities. Uh, you get some doses for countries, you reduce the timeline between uh, when rich countries get the doses and when poorer countries get the doses. And I think to that extent, they probably will do quite a lot of good. I mean, it will not take 10 years before the COVID vaccines will come to poorer countries. It will take just a few months delays for the first doses. I'm not talking about mass immunization, but I'm talking about the doses to the health workers and the at-risk groups. And this is a great achievement. And I think it's, it's there are good reasons to celebrate. The problem is uh, these mechanisms have been kind of oversold by our politicians as, you know, this is going to provide equitable access. But what does equitable mean? It sounds like, you know, we all be vaccinated at the same time. It's not really the case. The ambitions also have been lowered substantially. We were talking about, you know, having this pool where everyone could buy their vaccines from and you could, every country is with vaccinated at the same time. Now we're talking, okay, maybe it's to provide you know, three to 20% vaccines to countries. It's not exactly the same levels of ambition. Maybe we would be happy if it's 3%. Um, so uh, there's been a lot of rhetoric into why we need global solidarity. And then when you do that, you kind of oversell uh, the mechanisms and you create expectations that you don't really are able to match because the mechanism is uh, anchored in, 
uh, with uh, trade secrets it's been delayed it's ad hoc it's a new thing uh, it's uh, it's you know a lot of uh, consulting groups and bureaucracy involved and uh, it's it's not going to deliver as much as needed to have a max uh, uh, a worldwide vaccination rollout right so obviously covax and other initiatives can improve access but the question is is it a question of zero access to maybe 20% access or 100%, right? So it, it just seems that the, the evidence available so far is that it'll be far less than anticipated. So maybe the ambition was very high that in reality with even European countries struggling to get access to vaccines, how will you know, COVAX be able to secure vaccines for low-income countries. So what I think is quite paradoxical, Antoine, is that on the one hand, you have countries like Norway saying, hey, we should be making sure that low-income countries get access to vaccines. But on the other hand, when the world's largest pharmacy, which is India, together with South Africa, applied for a waiver to the WTO on intellectual property rights in order to develop vaccines, in order to make them accessible, countries in the EU and Norway and the United States were the first to oppose them. And I've heard all kinds of arguments, you know, but mostly even from Norway, the arguments are that this is not really the biggest problem, that there are many other issues. It's not really the intellectual property rights. And, and this is needed in any case to protect vaccine producers. What is your take on that, this, this waiver that was not approved? Yeah, I think it's a complicated matter. Um, for Norway, it definitely puts the country at odds with its uh, rhetoric uh, about global solidarity and its actions. Uh, and I think it was probably some mistakes done uh, in the TRIPS Council where Norway's statement was extremely, uh, how to put it, violent or maybe strong against, whereas Norway has always been trying to, you know, be in this kind of bridge builder, more moderate position. And that's the position they're trying to take now, the national authorities of Norway. So, but the, the main issue here is, is how do you uh, increase production and how ensure that you have enough vaccine doses everywhere? And you have both the short-term issue for the pandemic and you have the principal issues for any time. I think that the patent system and the TRIPS agreement is toxic for research and development for medicines. But I think that right now in the pandemic, you had to deal with it. You had to accommodate it because you needed the big pharma and all of the industry to develop these vaccines. So that was not the time to challenge it in the beginning of the pandemic. But now that we have these vaccines and we have uh, kind of a different leverage uh, against the industry, now is might be time to start reflecting about how do we move forwards to both provide incentives for R&D, but also to make it more accessible because it is not okay that Big Pharma has given 400% more dividends uh, the last 20 years on, on the stock market. This is money that is going in, in, in private profit and not invested in innovation, not invested in research and development. That, that's, doesn't, that is a system that is broken.
a colleague of mine at the new school, Sanjay Reddy, together with Arnavacharya, they wrote a piece in December of last year, actually, on the world needs a people's vaccine. And the argument was uh, twofold. It was about an effort-based approach and an outcome-based approach. So the effort-based approach was to pay for the costs of any organization or private sector company that puts good faith efforts towards research and development. So that's the effort. And then the outcome-based approach would reward these actors for success in meeting specific benchmarks, up to and including a full-fledged vaccine. So the thing that I'm always wondering about is what would it take to move the needle towards this kind of a people's vaccine? Because Antoine, almost everybody accepts that if we really want to combat this problem, we can't just do it in the rich parts of the world. We're all vulnerable. So it's, it's, it, it is the world as a whole, but the, the debate is not really about a world vaccine yet, is it? No, and I think, you know, there are some mechanisms that have been put in place by the World Health Organization. It's called CTAP. It's a way for um, for pharmaceutical companies to pool the recipe of the vaccines to enable other uh, companies to produce it for for free during the pandemic. It's kind of an exception mechanism. But this is this is something that sounds terrific. Why hasn't you know why hasn't it been backed more by politicians? That would have been a great way not to change the entire intellectual property system in a record time and that would never have worked you know it's it's processes that take years but this is, is a concrete pragmatic solution that would have needed a lot more political support than it received and that kind of exist here but received zero application zero data from from the industry so obviously it's it's failing i've been following of course the indian case quite a lot these days we have a big new research project uh, looking at Indian pharmaceuticals in Africa. And it is fascinating, you know, how the debate has turned out within India, where now the government has started this, uh, the world's most ambitious uh, vaccination drive. And that has met with some skepticism, as you may be aware, because uh, the two vaccines that have been rolled out, that's the AstraZeneca vaccine that is a University of Oxford vaccine called Covishield, which is produced by the Serum Institute, the world's largest vaccine producer in India, and an indigenous vaccine called Covaxin produced by Bharat Biotech. It's the second one that people are a little worried about because there are there is a lack of data from uh, phase three trials, and people really don't know whether it is safe, and there are you know all kinds of concerns, even among health workers. So India is rolling this out, and I think it's fantastic. You know, the way the ambition about 300 million people would be vaccinated by August. At the moment, it it isn't looking that optimistic, but at least they have this ambitious target. But that's within the country. And again, going back to our thing about vaccine nationalism, I'm a little intrigued as to whether the Indian government is thinking about inoculating its own citizens before exporting, because it is at the same time as it has started this ambitious drive, it is also producing um, uh, vaccines for export as part of its diplomatic uh, approach. So it's Sri Lanka 
It is Nepal. It is about rewarding friends. And some people say this is because it's it's trying to um, somehow compete with the Chinese vaccine and, and Chinese diplomacy. So I don't know if you've been following that, you know, from a political science, international relations perspective. I, I think there's some, you know, really interesting things happening on that front. I fully agree, Dan. And I think there is a lot of... Um of work to do to find out, uh, to go beyond the propaganda pictures, you know? It's so, uh, you have the governmental communication about this uh, flights of vaccine being sent to other countries. And it's, um, there is very big variation from what I understood in India between donation to neighboring countries. And this is kind of, you know, an act of friendship and obvious uh, diplomatic ties. But you also have the expert of commercial deals and they've been kind of fronted as a, a donation, but it is a business deal. Like India is making money out of this and we should not forget that. Uh, and, and that is a very good point because both India and China, sometimes it becomes difficult to figure out what is a state to state kind of action and how and to what extent is the state involved in subsidizing the private sector. And you're absolutely right because the Indian pharmaceuticals have been, you know, they've had a huge presence on the African continent. And it isn't just solidarity or, or altruism, it is to make money. But there is something to this vaccine diplomacy that India is doing in its own neighborhood. And what I find quite intriguing or interesting is, you know, how countries like Nepal and Sri Lanka are playing the field. So they're getting stuff from India, they're getting stuff, vaccines from China. Nepal has just started a vaccination program with the COVID shield vaccine. So in a way, maybe this is opening up for uh, opening up the policy space for many policymakers in these countries to actually get the most out of the situation, you know, get things from uh, both these uh, Asian giants. Yeah, absolutely. They need to be smart and, and play on every end possible and probably the COVAX mechanisms also to get from uh, from the Western pharmaceuticals. But vaccine diplomacy is also about, you know, when you um, uh, allow export of vaccines to some place, this is also a form of diplomacy. So when India allowed the export, the commercial export to Brazil or to Morocco, this was a diplomatic move. They could have withheld the doses. When uh, uh, Great Britain now says that it's completely unacceptable and unthinkable that doses will be sent to the EU. It's also a commercial deal, but there is a lot of vaccine diplomacy in here that needs to be unpacked. When we talked about the TRIPS waiver, that was India also fronting the interest of its own industry, uh, vaccine industry, you know? Uh, Serum Institute is running full production now. They don't need this waiver to produce. They, they already scaled up production capacity. So um, that would have probably been useful for other producers. Uh, I'm not denying the, the the spirit of it, but it would also have been useful for Serum Institute not to have to pay royalties and uh, and to make more profits in a way. Yeah, that, that is a good point. There's something else I thought of, you know, last year when President Trump arm-twisted India into reversing its ban on exports of hydroxychloroquine. It was this, India said, no, we want it for our population and the US said, oh, we can retaliate. And then India reversed and sent a lot uh, of hydroxychloroquine. Apparently, a lot of this uh, stocks, you know, in certain states in America are just rotting. They're trying to get rid of it. Uh, so 
I, you know, I, I wonder how this will play out in the near future, because uh, the Chinese, by the way, have been a bit upset and they're with, with the kind of increased attention that India is getting for its vaccine diplomacy. The Chinese are saying that the Chinese version is different in the sense that they're not really using it for diplomatic purposes as India is. And uh, India should be taking care of its own population first because they have so many more cases and deaths than, than China. So uh, India is uh, retaliating by saying, hey, you know, this is not your business. And so I, there's a lot of interesting things going on in, uh, in terms of this vaccine diplomacy. But I think uh, a key factor, and I, I really want to stress this as well, Dan, because it's what a key factor here is the role, incredible role taken up by India, China, Russia. And it's amazing to see how the world has changed now. It's really, you know, a, a big moment now. We, we show that it's it's no longer the West and the North or, you know, rich countries who, who dominate the international scene and research and development. It's a multipolar world. And this is a clear illustration that vaccine diplomacy is undertaken by everyone. Everyone has their own interest. Everyone is doing something, but there is a major shift in the world, a power shift that is uh, that we are witnessing now very clearly with, uh, with this vaccine case. I agree, Antoine, but there's one aspect where it is still not very fair, which is really how rich countries have more resources to to get the vaccine. So as much as India and China and Russia want to distribute their vaccines, there are all kinds of issues. It is not just the price, but also the logistical hurdles, storage, uh, summer months are coming. Even in India, it's going to be really difficult with vaccines that don't require the extreme temperatures for storage, uh, such as the Pfizer uh, vaccine. So I just feel that even though, and you, I agree with you, that it's been perhaps a bit of an upheaval in, in terms of the international community, that the, that the roles have changed and the tables have perhaps turned, but the rich countries are still pulling the shots by virtue of their ability to just get access to it right away, or by virtue of the fact that they signed the contracts at an early stage. And a lot of uh, low-income countries are just waiting. And and I'm, you know, I'm just thinking about countries like Malawi that, I, that I'm really worried about, that is not just experiencing a second wave. Some say it's a totally new epidemic altogether. Even if they get you know, um, a certain amount of vaccines, it's never going to be enough. And we're talking about 2024, perhaps, when even India, the whole of India is vaccinated. So I, I'm a little uh, depressed by this scene. I mean, are you more optimistic? I think the, the conceptual distinction here is between those countries who can produce vaccines, and here you can place uh, uh, Europe, the US, India, China, Russia in the same group, and those who need help, <laughs> and, and, and these are way behind and will, will suffer a long time before they get the vaccine. But among the vaccine producer countries, these are the big questions of protectionism or vaccine nationalism, as we talked about. They can all exert some form of it. And the same with vaccine diplomacy. All of these countries can exert some form of vaccine diplomacy. And it's interesting to compare them. I think there is some very good uh, case studies here to and, and analytical work to do. And there is also very a lot of work to do to go beyond narratives of, you know, like this is self-self cooperation, so it's necessarily good. No, it might be a, a business deal, you know. Uh, 
uh, it's a north-south cooperation, so it's neo-colonial. Not necessarily. If it's a COVAX mechanism, it might also be, you know, some form of technology transfer, like we've seen from the University of Oxford to the Serum Institute. I don't see any colonial uh, uh, issue here. It's it's really an act of solidarity and 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 an act of diplomacy as well. So there's a lot of things to go beyond narratives, beyond the preconceived ideas, and a lot of research to do. So it's an exciting uh, research agenda moving forward, I think. Well, since you are a PhD student and you're doing research on related issues, of course there are, and we should be having, I'm sure, all kinds of new research projects, Antoine. The final set of issues that has to do with the preparedness. Do you think, given all the stuff that has happened and all these initiatives, do you think we'll be better prepared next time? Well, it's a hard question. Uh, it's hard to say no. I mean, of course, we learn things. But uh, what we've learned from, uh, from studying pandemics is that uh, there are a cycle of panic and neglect. So now we're all panicking. And we'll, we'll draw lessons and we will learn them and we will implement new mechanisms and then we will forget. And if we don't have sustaining financing for these issues, it will just fade away. Um, so I'm not extremely posit positive about all of this, but there are some innovation uh, revolution like with these mRNA vaccines that can change. They can be really a game changer moving forward. So um, let's hope. But uh, so much to talk about and, and also the role of the private sector that really needs to be discussed more and that really needs to to be um, better governed because we have a huge governance issue when it comes to controlling big pharma to controlling the big multinationals and uh, harnessing their power and their innovation for the greater good i think is really key moving forward with preparedness work thank you so much for coming on my show antoine thanks dan for the invitation If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is Global Dev Pod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.